Let's see. We've got China RRR. We've got the WTI curve into Contango. Yesterday it was up to around the June contract, so pretty serious indication there. We obviously got yield curve inversions. We've got Euro dollar futures inversions. We got really negative swap spreads. The dollar rising, though, that's backed off a little bit, as has some of the uh, collateral indications that we follow, but they're still really elevated compared to anything resembling normal. And let me throw one more at you, a very key one that has been dependable in the past in telling us whether or not the Federal Reserve is done with its rate hikes. I'm talking, of course, about the fitted instantaneous forward rate two years hence. And just recently, the forward rate compared to the nominal two uh, forward nominal the forward two year rate compared to the nominal treasury rate has also inverted. So today we're going to talk about what this thing tells us, what this thing tells us in the context of all the rest of these yield curve signals, the fundamental properties of these deep financial markets, and what information they're trying to give us that you're not going to get from the mainstream media nor Federal Reserve because what this number actually represents is something the Fed doesn't even want to consider. Fed is hiking rates. They want to stay aggressive. The forward rate says, don't think so. And the irony here is this fitted instantaneous forward rate two years hence was created by the Federal Reserve as a way to try to understand Alan Greenspan's conundrum. So this is important stuff. There's fundamental factors involved. Good discussion here today. But first, I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you for joining me. If you're interested, we have member uh, member content available at the Eurodollar University website. That's eurodollar.university. We have exclusive videos going behind this behind the curtain into the into the shadows of the euro dollar system understanding where money comes from how it's redistributed what are the role of the banks as well as central banks superfluous central banks and all that kind of stuff we also have uh research subscriptions daily the daily briefing that i put out as part of a bundle at markets insider pro there's still a sale going on there where you can also get uh some uh, you also can get some savings on Eurodollar University's deep dive analysis, which is a separate subscription. All the information is available at our website, eurodollar.university. So let's start by going back to early 2005. Alan Greenspan is in front of Congress. This is February 2005. They're just He just started a series of rate hikes, which he intended to continue onward because he thought that inflation was the greatest risk facing the uh, American economy. And therefore, he needed to raise interest rates in order to slow the economy down, get inflation under control before it got out of, before it got out of hand. And it sounds familiar because the Fed goes through this every single time. But what he couldn't figure out, his conundrum that he told the, the, the committee in Congress, was that long-term interest rates were not behaving in the way that they had expected. Now, the way economists and central bankers normally think about bonds at all, when they do think about bonds, which is not frequently, is nothing more than supply versus demand. They don't really consider there's any fundamentals involved in uh, what a bond yield actually is, even though, historically speaking, we've seen fundamental behavior expressed in terms of especially long-term yields. But Greenspan said, no, uh-uh. 
He said, in fact, he even told Congress that, historically speaking, if the Fed sets or at least influences the short-term rates, then the long-term yields should just fall in line. He said to Congress, 10-year yields, for example, can be thought of as an average of 10 consecutive one-year forward rates. In other words, what he was saying is that this thing is a dependent process. The Fed sets the first rate, their first forward, um, in his simple model, influencing rates through the federal funds target back then. Nowadays, there's a, it's a little more complicated with RRP and IOER. But by and large, the Fed sets the first of those forwards. What, he's, what he was telling Congress is that he expected all the rest of the curve to just fill in as, as, uh, as, as if it was a mechanical process. So if the Fed at that time was raising rates by about 1%, maybe it was three quarters of basis. Either let's just assume it's 1%. So the Alan Greenspan's Fed raised the short-term rate by 1%. He anticipated, and what he told Congress was that the long-term rates from that very first short-term rate on out would all go up by the same amount, a series of one-year forwards. So if the Fed raises the short-term rate by 1%, then the two-year Treasury note yield would go up by 1%. The, the five-year Treasury note yield would go up by 1%. The 10-year Treasury note yield would go up by 1%. And it would be just a mechanical process. Everything is dependent upon the Federal Reserve. Now, what he couldn't figure out was they had raised the short-term interest rate by, I think, 20, uh, 75 basis points at that point. Maybe it was 100. No, it was, I think it was 75. But the long-term end of the yield curve, especially the 10-year, the benchmark 10-year, the 7-year, the middle part of the yield curve, those rates were actually lower in February 2005 than when Alan Greenspan started raising rates. Thus, his conundrum. And so there was a whole flurry of academic activity, including the ridiculous proposition put forward by Ben Bernanke and Brian Sack, where they said, there's a global savings glut and apparently foreigners like U.S. Treasuries. These baby boomers that are saving for their retirement are buying U.S. Treasuries by the bushel full. And that explains the behavior of long-term rates. Well, that was debunked re really quickly. And it was a ridiculous thing anyway. But other economists within the Federal Reserve said, Let's see if we can't figure this conundrum out. Why are long-term rates behaving what seems to be independent of short-term rates? And contrary to most accepted conventions in orthodox, orthodox economics, a couple of researchers by the name of, let's see, Don Kim and Jonathan Wright said, maybe there's some fundamental value, some fundamental behavior, some fundamental factors embedded in these yields that are not being captured strictly by supply versus demand. And they wrote a paper in August of 2005, which then gave us this, uh, this uh, forward, in, the fitted instantaneous forward to your hence rate by trying to decompose interest rates in a very Fisherian manner, which I've talked about before. We get into term premiums here, which we don't need to really get into too much. But by and large, they use the statistical regression techniques an arbitrage-free three-factor term structure model and the recent behavior of long-term yields and distant horizon forward rates. In other words, can we find some kind of fundamental properties in long-term yields that tell us something about, something important about this conundrum that Alan Greenspan was having? Now, what the, what the, what the paper said was that we'll try to decompose the yield curve or we'll try to pull apart the yield curve in three different ways. That's the three-factor model. So they come up with proxies for the level 
the slope and the curvature of the yield curve in order to try to, again, decompose it into fundamental components, including term premiums, which I'm gonna, I'm gonna get over my nausea about those right, right here. Essentially, if you wanna know what, the, what kind of uh, process they use, they use a three-dimensional vector of latent factors that follow the continuous time analog of a vector autoregression known as a multivariate Ornstein-Ullenbeck process. So it's a very complicated construction that looks at, first of all, the uh, data they use are weekly zero coupon structure of the U.S. Treasury curve with maturities. They look at the three month, the six month, the one year, the two year, four year, seven year, up to the 10 year. So they're looking at the yield curve and how it changes through time and trying to deconstruct some of the changes in it to, to, to fill out proxies for, again, the three factors, level, slope, and curvature. And they also add in the model, as they say, the model uses monthly data on the six and 12 month ahead forecasts of the three month T-bill that's derived from the blue chip financial forecast, as well as semi-annual data of the average expected three month T-bill six to 11 years hence, thus the hence, also from the blue chip survey. So they're taking a whole bunch of data, including market-based uh, market data on the yield curve shape, and more importantly, how the yield curve shape changes through time, adding in some elements of economic surveys because there's, you want to broaden their horizon, more data, better, better results, hopefully. Essentially trying to get a sense of what the market, what economists are all thinking about the way in which interest rates are going to behave down the road. So there's fitted hence rates for not just the two year, but there's also one year all the way out to the 10 year, which kind of tell us in relationship to where the nominal U.S. Treasury rate is today, what the market might be thinking, not just the market, what all of, what a lot of useful information is thinking about the way in which interest rates are going to behave over whichever time horizon. So if we're thinking about two years, where is the forward rate compared to the current nominal rate? And if the forward rate is well above the nominal rate, that suggests that this market, the curve behavior, our proxies, the, the slope, the level, the curvature, all of these things, plus some economic surveys and what forecasters are thinking about the economy, as well as you know macro money factors, less money, but more macro factors in the blue chip survey, to put it all together in a singular calculation for probability of where interest rates are gonna behave relative to where the nominal markets are placing them as of right now. So what they come up with is, as they say in the paper, our estimate of the end-year instantaneous forward term premium is essentially the end-year instantaneous forward rate less the end-year ahead expected future short rate. Likewise, the estimate of the zero coupon term premium is the yield on the zero end-year zero coupon less the average expected future short rates. So basically, we're looking at a hopefully well-grounded, somewhat market-based, somewhat survey-based, bunch of information, changes through time. What does that tell us about what the probability of interest rate structures are gonna be at certain points down the road? And we focus in on the two-year because the two-year structure, uh, the two-year part of the yield curve tends to be a fundamentally important, uh, where really, really where expectations about Fed policy start to meet these more fundamental factors of what's really what really drives interest rates, what wasn't really a conundrum, it was only to Alan Greenspan, 
which is what Irving Fisher said a long time ago, nominal growth and inflation expectations, that Greenspan was incorrect. The yield curve is not a series of one-year forwards. It kind of starts out that way, but as you get to around the two-year rate, it can act very independently from then on. And what explained the yield curve behavior back in 2005 wasn't some global savings glut, nor was it any of the other factors this paper identified. It was simply that whole housing bubble thing. Think about it from the perspective of someone who's afraid of the housing bubble bursting. Wouldn't it be prudent to own a safe and liquid asset like a U.S. Treasury if you thought that at some point in the future, this whole massive housing bubble and all the other stuff that went along with it, not just in the U.S., but all around the world, the banking problems, the deflation, what became the global monetary crisis of 2008, wouldn't it be prudent to own safe and liquid assets ahead of time? So the market was owning and demanding safe and liquid assets, inverting the yield curve because it was anticipating lower nominal growth and inflation. The Fed was thinking inflation risks are high. The market was saying inflation risks are low. And we used the forward rate, the two-year. Hence, it told us that it, in, in real time, well, if it had been around, it would have told us in real time. But the calculations now, and then this has been borne out in repeated practice, that the Fed was done even before the Fed was done. So let's, let's review the history here. The two-year forward. Let's go back to late 2018, the last time the Federal Reserve was in a rate hike cycle. Now, December 18th of 2018, the Fed said, we're going to continue hiking rates. We're a little bit nervous about this global growth crap that's going on. We're a little bit nervous about what's going on in the, in the markets, but we're still thinking 2019 is going to be rate hikes. That was in the middle of December. Then you get to early January, January 8th, I believe it was, the Federal Reserve's minutes for that particular meeting were released and they sounded nothing like what, they, what the press conference and what all the, uh, the initial statements seemed to be. The Fed was worried about inflation in middle of December. Then here we are in early January, January 8th, the Fed minutes say, they talk about muted inflation pressures. They talk about maybe it's prudent to reassess the situation. And thus, on January 8th of 2008 or 2019, was born the Fed pause. Now, the two-year rate, the two-year forward rate, had actually fallen and dipped below the nominal cash rate, the nominal two-year treasury yield, on January 2nd. So the forward rate had gotten the Fed pause before there was a Fed pause. And of course, the, the, two, the forward two-year rate continued to fall a little bit lower, anticipating correctly what ended up being later in July 2019, the first of a series of rate cuts that previously had been unthinkable in the mainstream. So along with all the other stuff that we see today in late 2018, including WTI Contango, China RR, inversions in yield curve and Eurodollar futures, swaps, all these other things in 2018, although they're much, much more flashing warning signs today, all those things happened in 2018, and then the forward rate fell below the two-year nominal rate, which basically sealed the deal. The Fed was done with rate hikes. Let's go back one more time. Quickly, let's go back to Alan Greenspan's last year's, the Ben Bernanke's first couple meetings. 
This is January of 2006, so a year, a little bit over a year after Alan Greenspan's conundrum, uh, conniption at the at the Congress. The forward rate dipped a little bit below the nominal two-year rate in January 2006, but the Fed continued to hike rates two more times to the end of June 2006, which was the final rate cut. But the forward rate got that one too, because the forward nominal the forward two-year rate dipped below the nominal two-year treasury rate in may of 2006 just before that final rate hike and then after the fed's rate hike the forward rate spread inverted even more of course leading us into the second half of 2006 and into 2007 where greenspan's conundrum was proven all over again as nothing more than the fundamentals of the yield curve which is essentially there is fundamental information about growth and inflation expectations. It's not just about supply and demand, as you hear all the time today, dismissing these bond market signals. Here we have even the Fed's its own regression-based construction. It's a, this mathematical monstrosity, which has proven, proven is a little bit stronger of a term, but it has added to the weight of evidence for yield curve information, especially in the context of everything else we see. So where are we in 2022? Well, the, four year, the forward two-year rate has been flirting with the nominal two-year rate ever since that big drop, the big deflationary wave in the middle of June. It dipped underneath it a little bit for a couple days, but it just recently went well below the nominal two-year rate. So we're into a situation like 2006, as well as early, early 2019, where the market, the changes, the three factors, the fundamental properties that we can, we can deduce from all these calculations that tell us the market is more and more thinking, not just the market, but there's a broad cross-section of participants who are thinking interest rates are likely to start heading lower, maybe more sooner rather than later. In fact, the two-year forward rate fell below the nominal two-year treasury at the end of October. And then when the October CPI data was released, I believe it was November 10th, then you saw a bigger drop in the forward rate. So over the last month or so, we're starting, we've got another inversion that tells us the Federal Reserve is closer to done than maybe anyone thinks. Now, the rest of the work, the, mo the rest of our, our job here in interpretation, which we can't get into today, although we did get some more data, is to figure out why that might be. A lot of the, the FOMC members are thinking inflation still. They're thinking they need to be hawkish. More and more and more, the rest of the marketplace, the monetary system itself, says it's not likely. So we have another key warning sign to add to a whole bunch of others. I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you for watching. As always, a huge thank you to Eurodollar University members, as well as the Eurodollar University Markets Insider Pro subscribers. I appreciate it very much. Uh, again, if you're interested in checking out what we have available, eurodollar.university. Until next time, take care.